I invite you to turn in the word of the Lord to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 5. Now we are presently between series, and sometimes, in fact, usually when we are between series, if I have an opportunity to preach what we call a free text, I try to draw something from where I was at devotionally in the past week. We believe that all of scripture speaks of Christ, all of it applies to us in some way. And our focus this morning is going to be on verse 18, but for context's sake, we're going to begin at verse 15. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15, hear together with me the word of the Lord. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your holy word. We thank you that Christ speaks to us by the Spirit, and we ask this morning that you would please open our hearts wide to receive your word. We pray that you would transform us, preserve us from error, inflame us to live for you, to believe what you promise. Lord, we are all weakness, but you are strength. We ask these things not for ourselves simply, but for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are certain things about which there's really no question. One of those concerns drunkenness. There is no question that there are many different ills and evils connected with drunkenness. The real question is how do we deal with the temptation to become intoxicated? That is a temptation that rests upon millions of people every single day. In a congregation of this size, it would be foolish not to think that it's a temptation that some have wrestled with in the past week. And in however many years, five or seven years, becoming familiar with this congregation... I can say that we should not deceive ourselves. This is something that many of us have felt drawn to and at times have fallen in. This is not one of those sins that we can just say, well, that's out there somewhere. This is common. And the fact that Paul deals with this, with this young church, he doesn't want it to be something we neglect, this issue of drunkenness. Now, there is that question. As I said, how do you deal with the temptation to become intoxicated? People have tried different ways. Probably the most unforgettable in our own history began about 100 years ago, the so-called Prohibition Era, when the government enacted laws that made the sale and distribution of alcohol more or less illegal. There was an idea behind it that came, I believe, overall from good motives, the desire to curb a lot of the ills that attend drunkenness. And the idea that was being lifted up at that time by social scientists, by some clergy, 
was that if we make it very difficult to access alcohol and if we attach penalties to the sale, sometimes the consumption of alcohol, then we can curb those things and the net benefit for society will be better than whatever benefits might have come through having access to these substances. That was the expectation. The reality is generally regarded as somewhat different than that. It's generally looked upon as a failed experiment because there were consequences that weren't entirely expected. The increase of organized crime, other things. But here's one of the key lessons that we can take from Prohibition era. Civil laws of themselves cannot impart virtue. They can restrain behavior to an extent. But they can't impart virtue. They can't give you the conviction from within that makes you cheerfully compliant with something. Now, as we're going to see this morning, we're going to examine the true biblical prohibition concerning substances that intoxicate. But perhaps more importantly than that, we're going to see that the Lord has provided both principles and a prescription that make it both necessary, possible to walk in sobriety, but in fact also even preferable. The believer receives things in Jesus Christ by the Spirit that are better than what can be had through drunkenness. So the Lord calls us to consider these things today This is the sort of subject that, again, I was moving through the scriptures and came upon this, but I was moving through other passages too. This is a perennial subject. It's one that we are going to deal with again and again. And so I believe it's worth our time to come back to this and to settle on it. You think about the church at that time, the church in Ephesus. These are mostly converts, probably some Jewish people who had that background, but converts from a Gentile background, a pagan background. In the Gentile world, drunkenness, as long as it didn't overcome your ability to be productive in your job, was generally not looked upon as wrong, inconvenient, perhaps unhealthy, but definitely also celebrated in some contexts. In fact, it was a part of religious worship. People who worshipped the god Bacchus or Dionysus believed that as they became, they didn't have science as we know it, they believe that as they ingested more and more wine, it was actually that God filling them with a sense of freedom and excess. And so in certain contexts, it was even a religious virtue to get drunk. We're going to see this morning that that church and we ourselves were called out of that not to stifle joy, but to bring about a better joy and something which really ultimately works benefit for all of society together. Now, as we consider this passage, we're going to do so under three main divisions. The first is going to be the prohibition. We want to see what is actually prohibited by the word here. Secondly, the prescription. What is the Lord calling us to seek in place of what we seek in drunkenness? And then third, I want to lay before you just some very practical applications. Let's begin first then with the prohibition. Look with me at verse 18. Verse 18 says, do not get drunk with wine. Now it says wine. It doesn't list every conceivable intoxicant. This is not meant to be exclusive. Wine here is emblematic. In the ancient world, there was a whole variety of beverages and other substances that could intoxicate you. 
But wine was by far the most preferable and the most popular in the Mediterranean world. It's recorded in ancient histories that when the Germans who had known their beer discovered wine from Italy, if they could afford it, they by far preferred the wine. Remember, this is a world that precedes ordinary refrigeration as we know it, precedes modern distillation. Wine here is not meant to be exhaustive. It's emblematic of whatever has the same effect. And here the effect is drunkenness. Notice in verse 18 what is not prohibited. And this is important. What is not prohibited here? It says, do not get drunk. It does not say, do not drink. Do not drink wine. And the Holy Spirit, had he willed, could easily have made a blanket prohibition against ingesting, imbibing, inhaling at all anything that may in any sense intoxicate. But he does not do that. Do not drink wine is not what's stated. Why is that? The Bible does permit a certain use of all earthly substances, provided that it fits together with godliness. There's nothing outside of us impure of itself. It has to do with how and why people use things. Consider several passages that not only show that it's permissible, but in some ways... The Lord approves and rejoices in these blessings. Psalm 104, verse 15. Psalm 104, 15 says, God makes the grass grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth and wine that gladdens the heart of man. Wine that gladdens the heart of man. In the book of Judges, it goes further. It says that the grapevine gladdens both God and man that he takes pleasure in our pleasure. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26, is a passage that lays out what's acceptable and required for certain temple or tabernacle offerings. Think of the things that we bring to the Lord as a part of our worship. And at that time, they brought sacrifices. We typically think first of the animal sacrifice. Not every sacrifice was for sin, for the covering of sin. There were also sacrifices meant simply to celebrate, to fellowship with the Lord. And Deuteronomy 14, verse 26 says this. The Lord is speaking. He says, spend your money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. The idea, in a sense, is a holy picnic. The Lord is calling you. In that case, he's bringing them together. He says, whether you want beef or goat, doesn't make a difference here if it's a fellowship offering. Choose whichever you prefer. The fat portion goes to the Lord. We understand him to, in a sense, be entering into the meal with us. And he says, drink what you like. But of course, he's not calling them to get drunk at the tabernacle. He's calling them to enjoy his blessings and benefits. Or 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul instructs Timothy, Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Clearly, he doesn't believe that wine is going to make Timothy impure. In fact, he's saying to Timothy, don't be so abstemious that you end up injuring yourself. Now, Paul is not claiming to have exhaustive medical knowledge. But the principle here is that it's not wrong 
to receive or to consume such substances if the purpose is sincerely for, say, relief, health, pleasure within limits. Verse 18, look what is actually prohibited here. Verse 18 says, do not get drunk. Not differently from today, the term, the Greek term used here, both in the New Testament, as it occurs in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and as it occurs outside of the Bible and Greek literature, overwhelmingly has one meaning. To be drunk is to be in a state wherein your judgment and your faculties are so inhibited by a substance that you are unable to fulfill your calling and duty. To put yourself in a position that prevents you from doing what you're supposed to do. Now, of course, there can be a legitimate discussion about what that is. What is the limit when it comes to fulfilling your duty? For instance, when you're operating heavy machinery versus on a Friday night and you have no expectation of leaving your home. I can understand how somebody says, well, the amount of alcohol in those situations is different. But brother or sister, you have to remember that you are set out from the world. You have a clear understanding and a confession about your calling that goes with you every day, every hour. What is your calling? It is to love God with all your mind, all your strength, all your soul and heart, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that brings us then to consider the principle, the principle behind why God wants people not to be drunk is not to kill joy. It is to protect, to preserve your ability to do what you were made to do. We were bought with a price. We're no longer ours. And our calling at every moment is to render love to God and to our neighbor. If we disable ourselves from that, then what does it say about our sense of calling? Look verse 15. You see that this is more or less the idea in view. Verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Most of us, I trust, don't need examples of all the ways that our duty goes awry in drunkenness. But there's another reason here tied into the principle, and it's to preserve you from the harm and to preserve others from the harm that comes with it. Look at verse 18 again. For that is debauchery. Not a word we often use now. Children, I trust some of you have never heard the word debauchery. To be drunk is debauched. The word is translated perhaps clearer, but not the way that we would phrase it ordinarily also, as reckless living, self-waste. It's a harm to yourself and to others. It's a destruction of what the Lord has intended for us. And so the prohibition against anything here is really against drunkenness, becoming incapable of fulfilling love. I want to ask a question, though, before we look at the second main idea here, and really, in some sense, the major idea. Why, again, did the Prohibition era in America fail to succeed in all of its aims? 
Doubtless there were many different reasons why. But at the heart of it, I believe, one of the major reasons, if not the major reason, why the Prohibition era failed to succeed in what it was trying to do is that creating penalties for certain behaviors does not itself satisfy the desires that were related to these actions. What were people trying to have? If you don't satisfy those desires, then people are simply dealing with their want while not being able to have it. And in many cases, people will just find a way. They'll find a way to get what they desire. What is it that people desire when they drink immoderately or use any substance immoderately such that they become intoxicated? Not just one thing, right? And different people are driven by different things, and you have to know your own heart and the circumstances where you are most likely to fall into this temptation. For some people, especially those who are younger, it is the desire to be part of an extraordinary experience, an uncommon experience. They find themselves in an environment where everybody else is getting wasted, and they don't want to be the one who didn't. And they also want to experience what it is that other people are experiencing. They know that this is an unusual state of mind and body. They're attracted. They want an extraordinary and uh, kind of communal experience. But for anyone who has drunk for any length of time, I think the glamour of that fades away. Sometimes it's to dull guilt or to ease nerves. You feel that I need this, not just in moderation, but I need to drown my cares. And there's a sense in which it works. People wouldn't do it if it didn't work for a time. To feel a kind of confidence. You've probably heard of alcohol described as liquid confidence. But what do they actually get? If they have any relief for any length of time, what they also get are shameful aches, all kinds of regrets, eventually addiction, disease, death, all of the sins that attend with this. And so the Lord has provided for us something better. Your deliverance from any particular sin begins at the belief that there are better things for you in Jesus Christ and walking in his way. You're never going to turn away if you believe that the Lord is miserly and he doesn't have something better. Now, I want to be clear, I am not claiming that what he has to give us will be instant. That's one of the cheap tricks about substance abuse. You get your fix quick. But it also brings quickly upon its heels all of the ills and evils. The Lord desires you to have good things. And that's where we need to consider in verse 18 the prescription of the Lord. Look with me again at verse 18. This is the second main heading. What does the Lord prescribe to us that makes it both possible and preferable to walk in sobriety? Verse 18 says, but be filled with the Spirit. The desire is not that you would be empty of all things, but that you be full of the right thing. It says, be filled with the Spirit. Here the Spirit refers to the third person of the divine trinity, eternal God. And in a sense we might say be filled with God, but the special work of the Holy Spirit is to communicate to you the divine energies to bring to you the power of God that transforms and unites you more and more with Christ. 
Now, there's a sense because God is omnipresent that the Holy Spirit fills all things already. Acts chapter 17 says, in him we live and breathe and have our being. But here, the term filling has to do with an analogy, right? An analogy related to wine of coming more and more under the influence of someone or something. If you have spent any time at all in the world, then I trust you have been around people who, as they drink more and more, you see it manifested especially upon their speech. They begin to slur, and the content of their speech changes from what it usually is. They become perhaps more demonstrative, and then at some point, they become unreasonable. Even so, the work of the Holy Spirit produces an evident change in people when you are filled. And I want to be clear, the Bible says that every genuine believer possesses the Holy Spirit. Every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the adoption of Christ written upon them by the Holy Spirit. But not every believer is filled. And every individual believer is not equally filled at all times. In fact, one of the requirements of serving the church in special and official ways is to be filled, to be characterized by filling. Acts chapter 6 says, choose from among yourselves men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not taken for granted that every Christian has the same degree of filling. I want to be clear about something else. To be filled with the Holy Spirit does not produce excess or a lack of control. I trust most of you don't need that reminder, but some of you who are younger may not be aware of something. There are many Christians, though certainly not a majority, but whole groups who believe that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, you lose all self-control, and maybe you're thrashing on the ground, maybe you're saying strange things, barking like an animal. I don't profess to know what spirit those people have whether it is psychosomatic, whether it's drummed up by a popular feeling, whether it is of the devil, I don't know. What we do know is what Scripture says, and it makes it clear that if you want to picture it this way, here is yourself when you are stone-cold sober. Now, off to this side, as you imbibe intoxicating substances, you begin to seed your ordinary judgment. And control. But off to this side is not an opposite, different kind of lack of control. Rather, there's in fact a gaining of holy composure, where compared to your baseline, the natural man, the person with the Holy Spirit is more controlled, more capable of directing their faculties in the right way. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. A wonderful verse for anyone to memorize, but especially some of the younger ones among us, for families to learn that together. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Therefore, the Christian who is acting without control is manifesting that they are in a low ebb of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one of the ways you know, am I filled with the Spirit? Well, are you walking in godliness? Are you controlling yourself? 
And then before we move further to some of the applications, I want to bring before you, concerning this prescription, the superiority of being filled with the Spirit. What again does the person get who seeks their peace, their joy, their confidence, their assurance of conscience from substances? What they get is really a lie, something that ends up stealing. And the enemy has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. You can't live in violation of the prohibition and still have the things that God associates with life. But the person who is filled with the Spirit has an abundance of good because the work of the Holy Spirit is to take what belongs to Christ and form that in you to experience the joy of the age to come. Romans 4 verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And those who enter into fellowship together in this kind of spirit, and I know some of you have had wonderful experiences of this that you ought to testify concerning to one another. It is better, many of us can speak from both sides here. We've experienced the kind of camaraderie of drinking, and then we've experienced the camaraderie of Two or more people who are full of the Holy Spirit rejoicing in godliness together. It's better. And with none of the aches, pains, and shame that come on the opposite side. And yet, so many are so unfamiliar with that filling that they seek in the world what the Lord alone can give for us. By way of conclusion, I want to deal very, very practically with just a few matters with you. The first is this. I want to ask you all, And I don't say this with any particular person in mind. And secret things are secret. Are you honoring the prohibition in this passage? Are you honoring it? And I want to lay before you, just in case the enemy would deceive you, the prohibition is not, do not become addicted. Do not become an alcoholic. Do not become too frequent in these things. It's do not get drunk any instance whatsoever where you forfeit your capacity to walk with a good conscience about the love to which you're called. Even one. And so I would submit to you that you have not actually honored this command if you feel okay about, in the future, occasionally getting drunk. True repentance in this area means a sincere desire before the Lord, I am not going to walk in that way ever again. Now, maybe you're going to fall. Maybe that's going to happen. Repentance says with the Proverbs, a righteous man may fall seven times, and yet he gets up again. It doesn't justify the behavior. Even if you have so devastated your body that you now have a physiological sense of dependence, saying to yourself that you have a disease does not justify not taking steps to walk in purity. And so you may struggle with this the rest of your life, whether alcohol or any other substance, yet you are called every day to crucify the old man. On the one hand, hear this warning. In fact, turn with me and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. And I'm going to omit part of this rather lengthy list of sins. 
1 Corinthians 6.9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then skipping forward, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not because sobriety earns salvation. It's because sobriety is a fruit of the Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit works, he produces fruits that are manifestly different than the world, including self-control. There's that warning, but then look at verse 11, the power of grace described here. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. For that reason, I would appeal to you, brothers and sisters, never see yourself or another person first as a substance abuser or as an addict. You see yourself first as a new creation in Jesus Christ who's called to make war for the rest of your life upon all sin. You have been called in Jesus Christ. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. Your future overwhelmingly is going to be free of these things. Verse 12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So I urge you, if any one of you struggles with this sin in particular, find accountability. Confess, as it says in James, confess your sins to one another in order that you may be healed. God uses means. But then I want to address what I fear is actually the more common sin among us. My time as a Christian and my time at this church in particular convinces me that of the two issues in this passage, one is more common. I think for the most part, we do honor the prohibition. But we are called to honor the prescription as well. The prescription is not have enough of the Holy Spirit that you live a decent life. It is be filled. How do you know when you're filled? When there's a manifest overflowing the change, and it's nowhere more evident than in speech. Similar to alcohol, the more you have, the more your words change. And the person who simply wants to fit in, kind of like at a party, might pretend to be drunk. They might slur. How many teenagers made foolish decisions? And on the one hand, they maybe didn't drink, but they still wanted to fit in, and so they pretended to be drunk. And only a drunk person would maybe be deceived by that. Is it not the case that Christians sometimes come together on the Lord's Day, not Friday, but on the Lord's Day, and they put on a kind of fullness of the Spirit? They talk about spiritual things, but it's not originating out of a prior fullness. What the Lord is calling us to here is not something that's one day of the week, but that at all times we overflow. And how is that manifested? Look at verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The fact that you're filled is manifested in the thankfulness that goes with you throughout the day for the small things in the way that you engage others with due humility, and especially in the overflow of praise to God. 
How then do we be filled? I think maybe this is the real mystery here. Many Christians hear this and they wonder, how do I have that? I know that I should have that. Practically, I have no idea how to get it. And maybe you think that some people just have that. That it's just the Lord favored them in a secret way and they have the joy of the Lord. You think back in Prohibition era times, if you wanted to get drunk, in most cases you had to have some secret knowledge. You go to a back door, you do a special rap, and now they know you're going to get in. And you think that having the fullness of the Holy Spirit is just as arcane. You have to have some secret knowledge. No, you don't. You do not. And I'll bear witness concerning myself. On the one hand, I have to admit, I have to be honest, I do not always walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Ask anyone who's around me on any day of the week besides Sunday. But on the other hand, I would be lying to you, and many of you would have to become liars to deny that you know to some extent what it is to be full, to be overflowing naturally with joy in the Lord. How do we get it? The first is this, and never forget it. You must understand and believe that having the fullness of the Spirit, not simply a bit of the Spirit, is your birthright in Jesus Christ. Not only in glory, here. You have to believe God is not simply wishing that you would have fullness. His desire, his promise to you is that you can have fullness of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 11, verse 9, Jesus is speaking. I don't ask you to turn there. But listen carefully. Jesus is speaking. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, to him it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's a little child asking for food, nourishment, and a parent's heart goes out to the child and provides. How much more God desires you to have what is truly nourishing and satisfying, to have something that is far better than what would be available through immoderate use of substance. And so we must believe. And then as Jesus says, we have to ask. And how much do you ask? You say, well, I asked and I didn't experience. The terms as Jesus uses them are indefinite in extent. You ask until you receive. And sometimes it's that very process of asking that reveals to us how little we want. How little we want. And then that humbles us so that we, after we've prayed, we begin to pray after we first discover, I, I guess I don't really desire this deeply. And then in that process of asking and seeking, we are to meditate and believe God's promises. I ask you to turn to one last passage before we close. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. There's a lot here. Don't get distracted by all of it. I only want you to focus on a few phrases. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us 
to his own glory and excellence. Now, the knowledge of him is not simply intellectual. It is experiential. It is intimate communion. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, when it says partakers of the divine nature, we obviously don't become God. But here it's talking about the character of God and the affections of God. Appreciate what is happening. There's an analogy here. As substances go physically into the body and begin to transform us, in some kind of analogical sense, through faith, as we meditate upon the promises given to us, clear promises, like he will never leave you or forsake you. He who began a good work in you shall complete it to the end. He has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. As we meditate upon these things and believe them, the Holy Spirit imparts to you the energies, the life of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Though he sits enthroned at God's right hand, yet by the Spirit there is no removal of distance. His very life becomes our life. He transforms us. We could talk about this, but we cannot grant an epiphany or an experience. But we should bear witness to the joy of it. I want to leave you with this. One of the most intoxicating, if I can dare to use that term, one of the most intoxicating means of experiencing God's blessing in this way is to enter regularly into singing with one another. Even as the text says here, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and making melody in your heart, not just outwardly, but from your heart doing these things. If I could change one thing about our congregational culture, it probably wouldn't be anything on Sunday. It would be that more and more it would become ordinary, not exceptional, that in our own homes and privately, we would sing psalms and hymns. That we would not look on that as though that's awkward. And you might think, you know, imagine this, because I've experienced this at other people's homes. I confess, I've not done it much in my own, and I intend to change. That when we have people over, as we often do, when we have believers over for a meal, why not just plan to also sing a song before the meal or after the meal? That might be awkward. I'm not a great singer. Neither are they. And it's only awkward until it becomes the new normal. But this is clearly God's will for you. This is obviously God's will for you. And when we choose not to be filled with either, that's just choosing a path that the Lord does not desire. From this day, it's not enough for you, having been exposed to this, it's not enough to avoid drunkenness. We are every day to seek to be filled. And may God help us to do that. Maybe then our gatherings would be so touched with joy that the temptation to drunkenness would wither on the vine. Maybe that will be the case. Let's ask the Lord to bless us in it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises given to us in the Word. Lord, we regret before you that very often we settle for less than your desire to have neither the world's false joys nor very much of your heavenly joy. 
But you have promised in grace that anything we ask in Christ's name, you will give. And we ask that you would please more and more make us a people who yearn for your filling such that we seek it, we knock, we ask until we receive. And we pray that you would cause our congregation more and more to manifest the influence of your spirit, especially in the way that we use our speech. For we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.